Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. It used to be that children would play with objects, be told or read stories, or perhaps listen to the radio during a significant portion of their early years. With the advent of television, videos, and computers, that tactile and oral world is often left behind. Children who are frequently exposed to television, videos, and computer games in the first seven years of life have been found to develop pathways in the brain that later are significantly deficient in reading, studying, and socialization skills. Four hours per day of television translates to 28 hours per week, which is more than one full day of television every week. Dr. Jane M. Healy is an educational psychologist with expertise in developmental psychology and a specialist in the brain development of young children. Her recent books, Endangered Minds and Failure to Connect, discuss how television, videos, and computers affect the minds of children. I spoke with Dr. Healy by phone from her home in Colorado and asked her to begin by describing the role of media on the developing mind of a young child. Media is becoming a more and more powerful uh, shaper of the growing brain, and sometimes we're not really clear that we like what we see it doing to kids. And by this, I would really include any kind of what the pediatricians call screen time, and that means television, video, or computer. And it also now, of course, means electronic toys in a way, uh, because uh, the whole climate of childhood has changed so that many kids now just push a button and watch a scenario unfold rather than having to figure out what they can do with a shoebox or how to develop a personality in a doll. The doll already comes pre-programmed with its very own little scenario and its own personality. So uh, all of this has the potential to change these kids' neural wiring, frankly. And well, Dr. I, Healy, how does this change? What's going on in the mind of uh, a two- to three-year-old child? Oh, so much, Barry, so much. Uh, that's a very critical period. The brain's very plastic at that time for all sorts of important skills. Language, among other things, as we all can tell by watching any two-year-old as they start to really work on mastering the, the grammar and the vocabulary of our language. Uh, if we skip that stage, uh, if we divert them with things to look at rather than things to talk about or people to interact with, we risk uh, developing a kid who has a deficit in that area. And a lot harder to make it up later than it is to give them the input uh, or allow them to express themselves uh, when the time is right. But there are also many critical periods that have to do with socialization, your feelings about other people and the way you relate to them in the world, uh, an awful lot of uh, potential there for to develop patterns of motivation or attention. Well, let's talk about some of those specifically, uh, perhaps with the deficits. Um, what is found to be lacking as the uh, uh, young child becomes an older person, maybe okay. 8, 10, or teenager? If there are any teachers in your audience today, they will, I'm sure, attest to the fact that they see major changes in kids' ability to relate to each other, 
in their ability to express themselves verbally and to understand written material and to pay attention long enough to process any of it, and also uh, to have the motivation to develop problem-solving strategies. So many teachers of all age levels tell me, well, these kids just wait for the answer to come or the solution to happen. They want to push a button and make it happen. If it doesn't, they don't have the strategies. They really don't have the, either the patience or the ability to develop ways to solve problems. And, you know, this is a serious problem when you get to tests at the end of the year or the SAT. Uh, your motivation has to be built in. And it's very interesting, by the way, that employers are finding that a huge proportion of high school graduates that they hire, uh, something up in the 70 percentage range, um, lack the kind of motivation and stick that they think they ought to have. Well, I think it would be important then if you could tell us what happens in the developing brain of a child who, using your examples of playing with a shoebox or creating a personality in a doll, uh, that does not happen when a child is uh, looking at a computer, looking at television, looking at videos, or some of the pre-programmed uh, doll personalities. Well, we certainly don't know all about this because there's been very little direct research done on the effects of any of these electronics on kids' brains. And there are many, many people, including the Academy of Pediatrics, is calling for better research. However, we do know a great deal about brain development, and a lot of that actually has come from California, from some of your universities and researchers there. And it basically has to do with the fact that the brain comes into the world genetically equipped for certain kinds of talents, kinds of development uh, at certain times in life. And every brain is different in this respect. By the time the child is born, his or her brain is different from everybody else's. What's going to happen from then on, however, is the very dynamic interaction of this genetic program with what we call neuroplasticity, or the ability of the brain to shape itself around the experiences it has. It's sort of like you get a custom-tailored brain uh, for your environment, because the things that the environment gives you to do or requires you to do or motivates you to do are going to build strong connections, and the things that are neglected are actually either weakened or completely washed out of the system. Can you give us some specific examples? Uh, sure. In the sensory systems, for example, you know, if you bandage up one eye um, for a certain period during childhood, obviously we're not doing this with kids, but we have examples with children who have amblyopia. Uh, if it's not corrected by a certain age, it's never going to be corrected because there's a critical period early in life when we're supposed to be developing binocular vision. And this is true of every sensory skill that has been looked at, but the interesting thing about human beings uh, is that this is also true of all our cognitive skills. And again, I'll come back to language. It's the one that's been the most studied. But children who have deficient language input or deficient opportunities to develop language. Uh, sometimes kids, for example, have ear infections that block their hearing. 
and they may miss the period where they ever really learn to articulate the sounds of the language. So they're always going to have a slushy SH or, or not be able to hear the difference between SH and CH. This is why we can't learn to speak Japanese with a perfect accent after a certain age because the critical period has passed for learning those sound discriminations. Well, let me ask, uh, on the other side of that, using the Swiss children, for example, where they, uh, in many families, are exposed to three languages from birth on up, what does that add to them? Well, it adds brain dimension uh, in the language areas. For one thing, we have a number of post-mortem adult studies, people who donate, <laughs> they donate their brains before uh, they become post-mortem for study afterwards, who have been multilingual, and it's become clear that those language areas are bigger and in uh, in vivo studies with people who are linked up to various kinds of measurements uh, either you know scans or else some kind of brainwave activity that they activate larger sections of the language parts of their brain uh, when they use language simply because they've had that rich language experience. So, you know, what this all amounts to is that what you put in or what the child is motivated to engage in or, or uh, process is going to build those areas and those systems in the brain, and the things that are neglected uh, are, are going to be very much diminished. Now, what do you have when you have a child sitting watching a toy, a video, a these stupid computer games for preschoolers, which, you know, they sell it to parents on the idea that it's supposed to make them smarter and ready for kindergarten. And, you know, it's going to, you know, frankly, quote-unquote, jumpstart their brains. Well, this is absolute hopeless nonsense. The human brain does not need to be jump-started, and it certainly has a tendency to select out of the environment the things it needs. The thing is, you put these seductive things in front of them to look at uh, that take them away from normal interactions with objects, with using their body, the rhythms of, you know, dancing with their mother to a, or their caregiver to a, a record, um, a tape somewhere along the way, um, just the general sense of themselves as a human being uh, developed from that independent play and that creative uh, business of just learning to stick two sticks together and make something out of it. Uh, all of that is being first sacrificed, and then second, what you're developing instead are passive reception for visual stimuli. Well, is it any wonder that our kids get to school and they can't listen, <clears throat> they have trouble with the uh, reading tests and the writing examinations, and the teachers are having a devil of a time teaching this stuff because the kids don't come in with the background, actually, in my opinion, in their brains. Um, I'd like to take a moment and tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Dr. Jane Healy, the author of a recent book called The Failure to Connect, uh, dealing with computers and the minds of children, and an earlier book called Endangered Minds, dealing with the effects of television and children. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Jane, can you describe the... Uh, uh, 
passive reactions to visual stimuli and expound on that in relationship to uh, television and turn off the television week and how it goes beyond that in the areas that you've discussed, videos and computers? Sure, I'd be glad to. First of all, television programs for kids and actually advertisements for adults, too, and computer games and computer educational uh, situations for young children are almost all based on the same theory, and it works. And the theory is that if you give a brain at any age enough visual stimulation in the terms of what they call features, visual features, that's fast-paced movement, zooms and pans, rapid changes in color, flashing, uh, moving back and forth, things in the peripheral visual field, the human brain is, re- is programmed to respond by alerting to those kinds of stimuli. The reason being, of course, in the natural situation, this is very useful for us. If I'm walking in the Colorado woods where I live and I know there are bears around, uh, if I don't notice a flash of brown color in my right visual field, I might be facing a bear any second. So I am, you know, my brain needs to be able to respond to those. But it's a very overriding response. It overrides what you're doing with the thinking part of your brain. The same is true of a loud, sudden noise. And so very early on, the advertisers learned this. If you watch Sesame Street, you'll observe that it's predicated on much of the same principles, which is one reason why in Endangered Minds I have a chapter called Sesame Street and the Death of Reading. I don't think it's been as good for kids as people had hoped it would be, but that's that's uh, my own opinion, and it's backed by a good bit of research, actually. But Anyway, what we're, we're talking about here is programs and uh, visuals that are designed to essentially manipulate the growing brain into paying attention whether it wants to or not. Well, in order to learn for a child to direct his attention from inside and to focus on things that are sort of boring, like uh, reading tests in school or math problems that get hard, um, they don't have to be boring, but the child begins to look at it as boring because he's not accustomed to wrapping his brain around these mental challenges. And I think what our kids are missing, uh, and it's so unfortunate, is that joy of, of taking on a difficult problem and figuring out over a period of time different ways to approach it and finally getting the answer and feeling good about it. They're being so short-changed because they don't have the stick-to-itiveness in many cases to work their way through that. And so what we get is we get a report, this kid can't pay attention. We get a report, this kid isn't motivated. He's bored in school. The teacher says this child has the attention of a flea, and most of my class is the same way. I have heard this from so many teachers. And, you know, what this really means is we're going to have to think seriously about what we're doing in the classroom. But I think it also means that we need to think seriously about getting to parents and caregivers the message that all this stuff which they think is making their kids smarter, um, especially the computer games, may really be not having that effect at all. It may be quite the opposite. 
Let's talk about the classroom and getting the message that you are describing uh, to the people that develop the curricula in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. How, what is the message? The message is that this is a different generation of brains. And I think there are some levels at which we can help with that. We can encourage parents to limit the amount of television and supervise it. We can inform parents, maybe for the first time, that what they've been told by the computer industry is not true. There is no evidence that early computer use is going to make their kids smarter or make them better at school. Quite to the contrary, it may interfere with the development of skills that that will help them there. So we, we really need to get the message across to the parent community before the kids even get to school. However, once they get to school, I think we have a huge job to do in working on some of the skills that have been neglected and eroded, and that would include, again, a lot of language development, Uh, focus on specific activities to increase the ability to follow directions, to work with a group of other children, because many of these children today don't have the verbal mediation skills. They can't talk their way through a playground argument. They just end up hitting. And uh, a lot of them don't have enough self-control to learn how to to manage themselves in groups of kids because they've been alone a lot uh, with a with a stimulus object in which they just push a button and it does whatever they want it to do, well, that's not a real good way to learn about getting along with, you know, other kids. Uh, so, you know, there are programs for uh, to teach kids better skills in that area. Uh, You're, when you say programs, you don't mean video programs. Oh, yes, you, God, no. In fact, I think if you've got a kid in a daycare center or an elementary school, and you go in and you see them watching videos at any time, man, oh, man, you better start marching on City Hall. (laughs) Uh, Well, I want to ask about um, the change, changing what seems to be uh, an existing paradigm. Uh, The concept of television or uh, videos for children uh, works as perhaps a babysitter. Uh, it's seductive uh, to the parents because the kids are, chi- are, are quiet. The uh, children like it. Uh, it's habituating, if not um, uh, neurologically addictive. Mm-hmm. It is in some cases. How do we begin to make that change when the parents, uh, perhaps a working uh, couple with a couple of children, they come home and have to get dinner ready, and the kids are clamoring, and they'll be quiet in front of the television? It creates a cycle. Well, as a working mom, I'll tell you, I well uh, understand. My children are grown now, but I well understand that. And you are tired, and the last thing you feel like doing is talking to someone who's not on your intellectual level, but um, and, and reading to a kid at night is, is hard work, even when you're exhausted, even though it doesn't sound like it ought to be. I think the point is, is when we take on the job to be parents, uh, part of it is going to be hard work, and it is going to be worth it because parents are very, very interested in their children's success and happiness. They want the best for their children. And they must realize that in order to get that, they're going to have to put some effort into it. But but I do think you see that they've been led down a primrose path. The advertisers 
especially the computer industry, apologies to you folks in California, uh, has wanted to inculcate in parents the idea that their children will be hopeless failures if they can't work a computer by age three, and that all this garbage that is being put out in the name of educational software is actually going to make them smarter and prepare them for the future. Well, this is absolute hopeless nonsense because the skills that they really are going to need in the future have nothing to do with today's computers or this very, very primitive software. It has, they have to do with skills of problem solving and creativity and imagination and interpersonal relationships and the ability to manage yourself uh, around a work situation. Uh, and the ability to communicate well and understand all kinds of abstract, symbolic, and graphic materials. This is gained from more, much more, from hands-on, real-life play and body movement and fooling around with uh, real materials and imagining scenarios for your toys and playing board games with other people, children or adults, and... um, doing the things that we think that kids really normally do uh, until you put one of these screens in front of them, and bang, then you've got the brain hooked into this thing that isn't very good for us. Jane, at what point uh, do the use of computers and the use of uh, television and videos enhance a person's education? Oh, at many points. And in fact, in Failure to Connect, I, I try to make the point that I think kids under age seven are better off without computers. Uh, but I believe that, you know, from then on, there are incredibly wonderful things that we can do with uh, our electronics, and I think that they are going to present to us. This is just in its infancy. Uh, and in fact, we've wasted an awful lot of money on computers in the classroom so far. But we're beginning to see some applications, especially for middle school kids and older than that, that really are able to do things that even a good teacher can't do as well alone. The, uh, you know, up to this point, a good teacher could usually do it better than anything on the computer. And uh, good teachers use that as an adjunct, not as a substitute uh, for themselves and for our curriculum. But what we have happening now is people thinking that the computer is better than a bad teacher. In many cases, it isn't. Any human being may be better than what they're getting on the computer. But we, we have these marvelous things coming along, a lot of which involve the Internet, Um, most, if not all, of which involve the child very actively using uh, his or her brain uh, to process information, to to understand relationships that are hard to see, quite literally, if you just try to think about them in your mind, much more abstract kinds of material in math and science, um, fabulous opportunities. So, you know, there's a real big-time place in the human brain for visual processing, and and our children may end up being better at many kinds of visual processing. I'd like to ask you about 
uh, video games, uh-huh. and specifically the um, video games that yield towards violence uh-huh. and shooting on targets. And if you have some thoughts about um, the multiplicity of the scenes in which children see death that can be simulated by shooting on a video game and how that's acted out in the violence in uh, high schools in the past uh, four or five years. Well, there are increasing number of studies coming in, and of course this is just common sense, that we're basically training children uh, to be expert marksmen, and we're training them not to worry about who they hit because, you know, they're going to be able to just reboot the game and start all over again. You know, there's a considerable body of evidence suggesting that when you, that, that the human brain does not naturally take to killing, especially other people but that if you train it over and over again, it's like a, the behaviorist psychologist used to tell us, you can decondition people to things, and you can actually teach them to operate out of instinct. So in other words, if a kid has played these violent video games over and over again, when something appears quickly on the side of the screen, he just turns and shoots without thinking about it. And some people are, are suspecting that this is maybe what's happening in these uh, schoolyard uh, killings, that, that what happened is the child's in a very heightened state of uh, excitement and, you know, feeling like he needs to do something and wants to be, be in trouble, and then somebody suddenly runs into his right visual field, and bang, he just turns and shoots. And afterwards, many of these, like the middle schoolers, for example, say, I don't know why I did that. Well, we've trained them to do it. You know, hello. It, it, to me, it's just so hypocritical of our culture to, to want these products and, you know, support people paying all kinds of money for them. And then, duh, you know, the kid comes out and, and goes ahead and does it. These children are not mature. They don't have adult brains. And, uh, in fact, this same kind of stuff has been used in the Army with people who do have uh, an adult um, status, and it works with them, too. So, you know, why should anybody be surprised that we've got violence going on? I believe it will only get worse. Well, Dr. Healy, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you if you could please tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Uh. Oh, that's uh, that's an interesting question. Well, I, I read a lot of books, but I must say one that I'd like to call attention to, and I imagine it'll be of more interest to the women in your audience, is a book by a woman who I think actually is a Californian, Jean Shinoda Bolden, who is a Jungian psychologist who has written a new book called Goddesses in Older Women. It's a follow-up to a book uh, that she wrote years ago called Goddesses in Every Woman, in which she helps us understand our own functioning and maturation um, in terms of the Jungian archetypes. And, and if, if many people in your audience probably don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but I, I have to say it's an extremely interesting uh, way to understand a little better why you've always acted the way you've acted, and how your relationships go with other people. Dr. Jane Healy, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much, Barry. Dr. Jane M. Healy is the author of Failure to Connect and Endangered Minds. Her recommendation for a book is 
The Goddess in Older Women by Jean Bolden. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.